This is Paul Adamson, and welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of my online magazine, Encompass. I chat informally with personalities from a wide variety of backgrounds on a wide variety of subjects. If you like this podcast, you can go to the magazine's website, encompass-europe.com, or any of the main platforms for free access to all the podcasts to date. I hope you enjoy this conversation. My guest is Timothy Garter-Nash. Timothy is Professor of European Studies at the University of Oxford, uh, an author of many books, and the most recent of which is the, the Magic Lantern, looking back at what's happened in Eastern Europe since the Velvet Revolution all those years ago. We're going to talk about many things, um, Timothy, but let's avoid the trap of trying to cover the whole universe in 25 minutes. But uh, given its topicality, I really want to ask you about the most recent trip of Joseph Burrell, the High Representative for Foreign Security Policy, to Russia uh, on behalf of the European Union. The critics, of course, the, the media commentary has been rather brutal. Do you think that brutality is justified? I'm afraid it is. The test of whether we have a European foreign policy is do we have a Russian policy? The idea was quite rightly to show that we have a twin track policy, um, tough and clear on human rights, treatment of Alexei Navalny, but at the same time seeking constructive relations. In effect, uh, Josep Borrell was humiliated at the press conference and actually at that moment it really needs someone with the political instinct to see I have to react on the spot. And it would have made a huge difference that the media story would have been a very different story if he had done so. But the bigger problem is not Josep Borrell, it's Nord Stream 2. And the fact that Germany, up to and including President Steinmeier, uh, which I think was a big mistake on his part, are continuing to defend Nord Stream 2. And, and that is a big weakness in the, the united front of the European Union towards Russia. But there, obviously Germany was pushing that very hard, of course, and, and even for different, maybe more geopolitical reasons, Emmanuel Macron also is very, well, at least until recently, is very keen to kind of reset relations with Russia as well. So that's a, that's a headache for the European Union, two of its largest member states, most powerful, most influential member states, for different reasons have a different view on Russia compared to the rest of the European Union. But that is the history of European foreign policy or the failure to achieve a European foreign policy where it really matters. I'm a founding member of the European Council on Foreign Relations. We've been trying for more than a decade to get a more effective and coherent European foreign policy. And the truth is, in many places around the world, uh, off the coast of East Africa, in the Western Balkans, um, in the coordination of development aid. There are lots of very good work that is done by the EU externally. The problem is when push comes to shove in relations with the great powers. But as you know better than I do, there's uh, this requirement across the board uh, for unanimity amongst all member states. Uh, and, and as long as that is the order of the day, things are not going to change very much, are they? But you know, I not sure that the key is in institutional procedure because when there is shared political will between the major powers and the high rep we can be very effective and when there isn't 
QMV doesn't sort that out. So I'm not persuaded that the answer lies in the in the institutional change to QMV. Not that I'm against it, I'm just not persuaded it'll make the big change. Um, one other point to make on this is that, of course, the big powers of Europe reserve foreign policy to themselves. It's what their heads of government like to do. And, um, you know, I have great respect for Josep Borrell, but consistently national leaders have not wanted to put really big hitters in the high rep job. Well, it calls into question, and surely, Timothy, but the whole rationale for the, the European External Action Service uh, actually being in existence at all. It's just had its 10th birthday, or now 11 and a half years old, whatever. Uh, and people are starting to question, what is the EAS for? I disagree. I, I think it's a really good thing because it is attempting precisely to bring together these different national positions. Um, and you need a machinery for that. You need a process for that. And as I say, you know, if you, if you simply listed the issues uh, in a given year on maybe 80% to 85% of the issues, you would have a good deal of coherence. The trouble is when it comes to the really crucial issues, that's what we don't have. But that's a political problem, not a machinery problem. Right. Well, let's move then from external relations of the EU to internal relations of the EU and, and Hungary and Poland. Let, let's, not be, let's not be too coy here. You, well, I know you're very exercised about this and you write a lot about it. Um, how long, how sustainable is it to have uh, countries like Hungary and Poland acting the way they have been doing and increasingly so as illiberal democracies, I think you call them, uh, remaining as members of the European Union? So, of course, the book that you mentioned, The Magic Lantern, describes the emancipation and liberation of East Central Europe uh, through the 1980s and then, crucially, in 1989, led by Hungary and Poland. I accompanied that whole process, the whole transition to democracy, which was inextricably linked to the return to Europe, the journey to joining the EU. And to my horror, what I now see is Hungary and Poland leading the charge in the opposite direction. The really shocking case at the moment is Hungary, which in my view is no longer a democracy. It's some kind of a hybrid authoritarian system. And uh, Jean Monnet said at some point in the early 1970s, you can have a dictatorship in Europe, that's not impossible, but you can't have a dictatorship inside the European community. And now we have something very close to it. And I think that is a fundamental challenge to the integrity and coherence of the whole European Union, which is nothing if not a community of democracies and a community of law. Other member states would probably sympathize with that. Uh, and I'm sure they're fully aware of the situation, they're not blind, uh, but they may be rather frustrated because they haven't got the any tools at their disposal to, to certainly to eject member states like Hungary, uh, or, even, or even to call them to order. Yes. So I, I think you're giving a very charitable interpretation <laughs> of what other member states think. Right. Uh, there is actually a rather shabby game going on, which is, as it were, seen from Hungary, from Viktor Orban's point of view, we pretend to be a democracy and you pretend to believe us. So having, having, having witnessed the whole building up of Hungary post-1989 as a member state, 
it has all the facade of media pluralism and separation of powers and judicial independence. And actually, the regime is quite skillful at keeping the facade, while the substance behind the facade has been completely hollowed out. And by the way, some parties in the rest of Europe, for example, the CSU in Bavaria, actually sympathize with a lot of his political agenda. But you're quite right. The fundamental problem is that we have not yet got the instruments to uh, actually connect the Europe of values and the Europe of money. This is the key point. The only way we've had endless rule of law frameworks and mechanisms and so on, and the only way really to get a grip on this is to impose some real conditionality between the billions of euros which are flowing to these countries from the structural funds and now from next generation EU, the European Recovery Fund, yeah. Yeah. which, by the way, are mostly at the disposal of the national governments to distribute. And the EU's own investigation suggests that they're corruptly used to link that to issues of the rule of law and democracy. And I'm afraid the deal agreed at the last European Council doesn't yet do it. Did they have any alternative, though, Timothy? The member states looked uh, frantically for a compromise for, for many weeks and months, right, while waiting for this fund to be operational. In the end, there's a classic EU compromise stroke fudge, no? So I absolutely concede and agree that Angela Merkel and the EU was in a different, difficult position because we had to get the budget through and we had to get the European Recovery Fund through in a very deep crisis relating to COVID. But I don't think that everything that was possible was done in two respects. Firstly, although there was some talk of taking forward the recovery fund as enhanced cooperation so that potentially Poland and Hungary um, uh, would not have benefited from it at all, which would have been a real sanction and blow. I don't think that threat was made credible. And, you know, one has to remember that in 2011, um, precisely that was done to David Cameron, um, but not done to Poland and Hungary, which is in a way quite a shocking fact. Um, and secondly, even if the compromise had to be made to get the budget and recovery fund through, there is one thing which could be done tomorrow, and this is to expel Viktor Orban's party, Fidesz, from the European People's Party. That is a purely political decision. There are no institutional constraints on that. And in my view, the biggest scandal and the biggest failure specifically on the part of the CDU and Angela Merkel is that it's the EPP. Well, of course, it, it, as you say, it is suspended from the EPP. Isn't that to appoint some kind of sanction? Yeah, but hang on a second. You say suspended, but for purposes of voting in the European Parliament, mm -hmm. their uh, MEPs still count. So it's a fudge and, and a rather dishonorable fudge because it's, again, we pretend to suspend you, but we don't. Um, and, of course, there's been a serious discussion, as you know very well, Paul, about, about actually expelling them. And we know very well from good reporting on this that it was effectively the German MEPs, particularly the, C the CDU MEPs, who stopped this.
Well, we can see, therefore, the, the pretty obvious reasons why Hungary has no intention of, of leaving the European Union. They made there was, as you know, a brief talk about a small number of member states after the after Brexit in, in 2016. They may they may follow suit. So we realise now that these member states realise their their the bread the bread is buttered by staying inside the European Union. Having said that, do you think the people like Orban have an agenda beyond the national self-interest? In other words, is he seeking to, to weaken the rest of the European Union as well, as, as well as just doing things his own way uh, domestically with impunity? Uh, without question. By the way, you know very well that Boris Johnson's famous phrase about cake, that his attitude to cake <laughs> was to have it and to eat it. The person who really has his cake and eats it is Viktor Orban. It's quite extraordinary. Hungary benefits enormously from EU funds, and in particular, as I say, many of them distributed to you know, close friends of the regime in Hungary. But at the same time, he not only criticizes the EU, he fought the last election under the motto, Stop Brussels, directly against the EU, and by the way, with borderline anti-Semitic posters about George Soros. So it's quite a shocking fact. Yes, I think he does have a broader agenda, and that agenda is to decouple the European Union from the regime-type liberal democracy, to demonstrate longer term that you can have a European Union in which a semi-authoritarian or hybrid authoritarian government can sit quite comfortably. And that's enormously dangerous for the legitimacy of the EU. How can we credibly preach democracy to other parts of the world? How can we talk about democracy to our own young Europeans when we have a country that is not a democracy, still a full member state? And, of course, it threatens the entire legal order of the EU. I mean, the fact is, both Irish and German courts have recently refused to extradite people to the Polish court because those courts they find are not independent, which they, they are not. Mm. Um, but, but if the legal order of the EU is undermined, what, and, and, and its character as a community of democracy, one has to ask what's left. So I think this is a much more fundamental challenge most European citizens and possibly politicians have, have woken up to. Well, you mentioned the Polish court. I mean, to what extent is Poland, if at all, different from Hungary in terms of its uh, position within, the European, within the European Union? It's very different. Not only is there a huge uh, uh, pro-European consensus in Poland, well over 85%, there's a large political opposition, there's big independent media, which are currently under fierce attack. If, we, if we're concerned about democracy in Poland, that is now the front line. It's not the courts, which have been, you know, emasculated to a significant degree. Uh, it, it's the independent media. There's a very active civil society. You've seen big demonstrations which have actually changed things. So I think there's a real qualitative difference between Hungary and Poland. Hungary, I would argue, is no longer a democracy. Poland is an illiberal democracy, by which I mean a liberal democracy in a state of decay. But it can still be saved. It can still be turned round. Personally, I think that should be a, a priority for the EU. Is there a kind of, maybe this is a, maybe a, a silly way of expressing it, but a kind of hierarchy of 
of criteria by which you judge whether, in this case, an EU member state is, is a democracy or not. I'm thinking, obviously, you've, you've referred more than once now to independent judiciary, uh, freedom of expression, media pluralism. But when it comes to things like cronyism or corruption, and other member states might be guilty of that, They're, they may have in, independent uh, courts and, uh, and free speech and media pluralism, but they are seen widely, frankly, you know, we all know I'm talking about, uh, as corrupt regimes as well. Um, yes, I mean, you, you will know very well that the British police, police used to have a category of ODC, which is ordinary decent crime. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a sense that there's ordinary decent corruption. Of course, there's been a great deal of it. And indeed, I think that, you know, any rules we have should be applied consistently. They should apply as much to, you know, Sweden or France and, or Spain or Greece as they should to Poland or Hungary. That's important. Um, but the key is pluralism. Right. What populism abhors is pluralism. What distinguishes a liberal from an illiberal democracy is pluralism. And that means particularly what I would call anti-majoritarian institutions, like independent courts, like a free media, like a strong civil society, strong professional associations, strong local and regional government, by the way, which is another important element, which Poland still has. One of the great successes of the last 30 years in Poland is, is the creation of strong, independent local government. Um, and, and those are the keys to keeping a, 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 a liberal democracy rather than a liberal one. I want to finish off this conversation, fascinating as it is, Timothy, by talking about the European Union now that the UK has departed. It's a great temptation to spend maybe half an hour talking to you about Brexit and the impact of the UK's departure on the UK itself. But I'd much rather, given your expertise, talk about what kind of EU now is, is going to shape up. It's six weeks since the UK definitively left the European Union at the end of the transition period. Do you already see the contours of a, a new European Union emerging just without the UK as a, as a member? So I think it's a little too soon to say because the cards have all been thrown up in the air during an extraordinary storm, to mix my metaphors. So it's very difficult to see where the cards will fall when, as it were, the winds of COVID have abated. Mm. But clearly, Germany is more central and powerful than ever. France is in a strong position with Macron. Um, I, I think there are a couple of points to be made. Number one, there is clearly a quite strong temptation uh, in Paris, but not just in Paris, in the sort of classic older Northwestern Europe, perhaps also in other parts of Western Europe, to say, well, we've got rid of the Anglo-Saxons, or the Anglo-Saxons have got rid of themselves. The East Europeans were never really part of the true Enlightenment Europe that we believe in. So let's push them away a bit and go ahead with a right tight little Europe, not just the Europe of the six, but perhaps of 10 or 12 or 15, mm. in practice, uh, concentrated around the Eurozone. So that is one possible future. Um, so that's point number one. Or does Germany say what it has classically said and say, no, 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 these countries which are immediately to our east are much too important to us we have to make sure that they stay with us in the journey. In the journey. Uh, 
So that's one of the arguments to watch over the next uh, two, three, four years. Um, another one to watch does relate to Britain, because obviously what France has wanted to do is to have Britain out of the EU, but still be able to use its weight and its skill and its connections in foreign policy and security policy and intelligence and so on. And that has been the French version, if you like, of to have your cake and eat it and, and entirely, you know, entirely understandable. I can exactly see why they're getting there. My, my, my fear is that uh, trans-channel relations, I suppose we must now call them post-Brexit, are so bad-tempered, so tense, there are so many areas for small bad tempered disagreement mm. that what we risk is what happened after all with Switzerland, which is that it's a permanent negotiation with constant tensions. And it's very difficult how you can, to see how, with the best will in the world, you can have Britain really engaged to give the European Union the weight it needs to deal with Russia or China. Um, while, as it were, in the morning you're having all these bad-tempered arguments about trade and investment and, and, you know, the trades are being taken away from the city of London to go to Amsterdam and Paris. Yet somehow, miraculously, in the afternoon, we're going to absolutely be shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder <laughs> in dealing with Putin or Xi Jinping. Um, and, and so that is my fear, that, 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 that the second effect, a longer-term effect, of Brexit will be to weaken the EU as a, as a great power, dare one say as a superpower, as a player in world politics. And that's very serious because this is one of the prime sources of the legitimacy of the European project for the next 20 years. Why do we still need the EU? Because we're in a world of giants, we need to be a giant ourselves. Okay, well, Timothy, we have been duly forewarned Thank you very much for this most interesting conversation. Great pleasure, Paul.